Okay, I want to thank you for joining us for this special Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Mental Health and Wellness in the Workplace, Strategies to Support Patients and Providers with Mental Illness. I'd also like to welcome anyone who's viewing this session online. The learning outcome for today's session is at the conclusion of this learning activity, participants will be able to describe the lived experience of one professional woman who is living successfully after suffering in silence with alcohol use disorder, major depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts while navigating the corporate world. Neither our speaker nor any members of the plan, planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. You must attend 80% of the activity to receive the one contact hour. For those viewing online, I'll be monitoring my email during the presentation, and you can send any questions to me at judith.m, as in May, .langhans at hitchcock.org, and I will relay your questions to the speaker at the end of the presentation. <coughs> oh, I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Kim Lamontagne. Kim is a passionate mental health advocate dedicated to helping others. After suffering in silence for many years with anxiety, major depression, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism, Kim has devoted her life to helping others survive and thrive in the face of mental illness. On June 16, 2009, she decided to seek help for alcohol abuse disorder, major depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. That is where her story begins. Kim's goal is to share her story as with as many individuals as possible to provide hope and to let individuals know they should not suffer alone. Please join me in welcoming Kim. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. Excellent. I'm delighted to see so many individuals here today, and as Judith had mentioned, I will be sharing um, a little bit about my story along with some other goals and objectives in terms of as healthcare professionals. Did I? Mike, just go off? Okay. Um, How you as healthcare professionals can really help your patients when they're coming to you uh, in distress and thoughts of mental illness and or substance abuse. So the goal today is really to initiate a conversation about mental health in the workplace. I feel like my life is going to be in and out. That's what I thought. Okay. I could use that, yeah. Now it works, right? <laughs> How's this? Ooh. Okay, great. Um, so the objectives for today. We'll just start by reviewing some mental health statistics. We'll be discussing stigma, shame, and fear. We're going to discuss a term called presenteeism. Does anyone here know what the term presenteeism stands for? Have you heard of it before? No one. Okay. I'll explain that to you during the presentation. I'll also be sharing my own personal story and reviewing tools on how to foster patient engagement as well as mental wellness at work. So this first slide here is about some statistics. If you're not familiar with this, one in four people experience at least one mental health disorder in their lifetime. That's one in every four individuals here in this room. 
Mental illness is more common than cancer, diabetes, and heart disease combined. It is a very prevalent disease that a lot of folks are suffering with. Depression is the most common mental health condition, and mental health, or excuse me, mental illness is highly misunderstood, especially in the workplace. Shame, stigma, and fear. Um, this was something that really caught me when I was in the workplace. So a survey conducted by the Partnership for Workplace Mental Health in the United States revealed that 8 out of 10 respondents, 8 out of 10, feel that shame, stigma, and fear of ramifications may be the cause of employees not seeking treatment for mental illness. I was one of those 8 out of 10. That number is extremely high, and it's very alarming. I really love to share this. How many folks here are familiar with Brene Brown? How many of you love her work? I am one of them. Um, so Brene Brown is a licensed social worker. She's a PhD and she teaches at the University of Houston and she's a pretty amazing individual. But she defines shame as the most human primitive, primitive emotion that we experience that if left unchecked will creep into every corner and crevice of your life. It's an intensely and painful feeling from something we have experienced, done, or neglected to do. Shame destroys our ability to see ourselves as worthy of love and connection. I, and I'm sure several of you here in this room, can identify with this. I was that individual who suffered in silence because of this right here, shame. I felt like there was something wrong with me. I felt like I was less than. I felt like I was unworthy, and at times I felt like I didn't deserve a place on this planet. And shame crept into every single crevice and corner of my body. I'm now extremely healthy, and I no longer have shame. But for those of you who are currently living in that fear of shame and you're feeling that, know that there is help and know that you're not alone. Employee assistance programs. How many um, individuals are aware that you have an employee assistance program here at Dartmouth? Okay. I'm going to tell you some interesting information about employee assistance programs. I did my MBA project, um, or completed my MBA two years ago, and I did some research, and I'll go through some of the research, research statistics, but one of the things that I found out is that 75% of medium to large companies offer an EAP, Look at the usage rate. Only 3 to 5% of people are reaching out when they actually need services from their employee assistance program. Stigma, shame, and fear are the largest barriers to EAP usage. Many folks think, I need to go to my human resources department to find out who the employee assistance program is. Wow, that's going to blow my cover. What happens if someone in my organization finds out there's something wrong with me? By the way, there's nothing wrong with you. You're all perfect just the way you are. <coughs> this is one of the reasons why I never reached out to my employee assistance program. I was afraid. I was afraid that I might lose my job. I was afraid that I might get labeled as the crazy person. So I never reached out to that employee assistance program. Now, employee assistance program will provide uh, help in the mental wellness space, and some programs go above and beyond that. They offer financial counseling. They offer, you know, uh, many different uh, uh, types of counseling. 
But the, the largest form of EAP is to really help those employees who are going through difficult times, who are going through some very challenging times, and they're there for you to use them. They are a confidential service that is typically um, governed by your human resources department. So if any of you here today are feeling like, wow, I really could use some help, please push through that shame and that fear and reach out to your employee assistance program because it's there for a reason. Presenteeism, so nobody here knows what presenteeism is. Okay, so when I did my MBA project again back in 2017, I worked with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, their Massachusetts chapter, and I, I did an analysis of a program with them, and I'll get into that next. But presenteeism was a term that I had never heard of. This is what it is. It's the problem of workers being on the job, but because of illness or other medical conditions, conditions they're not fully functioning. Presenteeism has the potential to cut individual productivity by as much as one-third. That's just you showing up and just for some reason you're just not fully present. Presenteeism is more costly than absenteeism because you know why? When someone is absent, you're not expecting any productivity out of that person when they're coming to work that day. They're checked out, they're off the list. But when you show up, with emotional baggage, physical baggage, and you're suffering in silence, and you're coming to work experiencing presenteeism, that's bad for you, it's also bad for your organization. Consider this, if a third of you here today were performing at maybe 50%, that's, that's bad for the bottom line for your organization. It's a huge issue. And it's a concerning problem that's really on the rise because we're hearing more and more about mental illness we're hearing more and more about substance abuse, but not everyone's really reaching out and asking for that help. So once again, going back, it's okay to not be okay, and it's okay to reach out for help. So my MBA capstone project, this is the title, Mental Health in the Workplace. And what I did was I um, analyzed the National Alliance on Mental Illness, their Massachusetts chapter. They had a program in place called CEOs Against Stigma. It was a grant-funded program that they ran for two years. They had over 120 CEOs from medium to large organizations across Massachusetts that signed a pledge to help eradicate stigma in the workplace. They did this by utilizing many different tools, including training their frontline managers, training employees, making their employee assistance programs more visible, but most importantly, the CEO was promoting and really encouraging from the top level down to eradicate that stigma in the workplace. Another thing that they did is they brought in individuals such as myself. I'm a trained presenter through the National Alliance on Mental Illness to speak in what's called an In Our Own Voice program, which is a, it's a free program, it's a free training, and I am able to basically, in a NAMI format, share my, ex my lived experience. What was interesting to me is that there was a survey that was done that was part of this program, done with 800 voters across Massachusetts. There were hundreds of questions in there, but there were three questions to me that stood out. Is it best to tell your family about your mental health issues or is it best to keep it quiet? 92% said it was okay to tell family. Is it best to tell your friends about your mental health issue or is it best to keep it quiet? 76% said 
said it was best to tell your friends. Look at the percentage about telling your coworkers. Only 27% of people feel comfortable telling a coworker that they're suffering, that they're experiencing a mental health issue, maybe a substance abuse issue. To me, that was alarming. That was very alarming. And I think it goes right back to that fear, that shame, and that stigma of the mental health. Um, I work for a new organization right now, which does a lot of research. And I'm kind of going to, I'm going to go back and forth between healthcare providers and patients. But one of the uh, research studies that I just recently read was, are healthcare professionals ready to address patients' substance use and mental health disorders? What the research found is that there were 676 healthcare professionals from over 50 organizations that were surveyed. And as healthcare professionals, 57% didn't feel adequately prepared to help screen patients for substance use or mental health disorders. And I think the reason for that is that opening up that conversation about mental health is sometimes challenging. How do you open up that conversation? 64% didn't feel adequately prepared to use motivational interviewing to help their enhance their patient's motivation to change their behavior. And 62 didn't feel adequately prepared to collaborate with their patients to create an action plan. I share this because when I get into my story, I will tell you about the most amazing nurse practitioner who came into my life the day that I needed to seek treatment. So some warning signs. Coworkers, family, friends, and patients all apply. So if someone's experiencing mental illness, there's a lot of withdrawal or passivity. I work in corporate America. Um, I've been in a business development sales role now for about 14 years in the top 2% of sales of my organization. And I don't say that to boast about my accomplishments. I say that because I experienced all these things. I withdrew. On a daily basis, I would get out of bed, push myself out of bed, push myself through all the physical pain that I was feeling because of all my depression and the anxiety and the suicidal thoughts. And what I would do is I would reach for the wall, my little fake wall, and I would pull a mask off that wall and just wear a mask of happiness all day long, a mask of high-achieving productivity. But I was withdrawing, and I was passive on the inside. I had a persistent, sad, or empty mood. Again, I wore that mask so no one knew. No one had a clue that I was experiencing these feelings. Signs of sleep problems, I could sleep all day. I could sleep all night, but I never did. I had problems sleeping. Or when I did sleep, I'd wake up and I'd be exhausted and want to go right back to bed again. The pain that, was, that I was feeling from top to bottom was just so bad that I just wanted to sleep through it and I wanted it to go away. I had expressions of guilt, hopelessness, and worthlessness. Decreased performance, that never happened for me, but that's something that you want to look for if you're with a coworker. Maybe their performance is changing a little bit, so you may want to ask that coworker, is everything okay? Or you may want to ask that person with the increased performance, are they okay? You'd never think to, but I hid my depression and my substance use through increased performance and being an extremely high performer. So I share all these with you because they seem like they are quite evident and that everyone would realize that these are signs and symptoms. 
But we all kind of carry our signs and symptoms a little bit differently. For me, again, I wore that mask. And just know that someone who's sitting next to you could be suffering and you don't know. It's okay to ask the question, are you okay? But look out for these warning signs. So a little bit about myself. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a, a, a middle-class family, had a great upbringing. Um, mom and dad uh, worked, and I have two brothers, excuse me, one brother and one sister. I knew at a young age that I had an issue with addiction. Believe it or not, when I was in second grade, I know, it's crazy, but when I was in second grade, I started smoking. <coughs> smoking. Yeah, I know, second grade. I don't even know how old that is. But my mother had, <laughs> my mother used to smoke Benson and Hedges cigarettes, if anybody remembers those. And she used to keep them in the kitchen cabinet, and I would just go in and I would grab a couple here or there, and I would smoke them. Um, when I got into middle school, I started drinking just a little bit, you know, to try and fit in with the in crowd. When I was in high school, I did the same thing. When I got into college, I, I started drinking every day. Every single day had to be a party. And I realized on my very first spring break when I got home from college that I couldn't make it through the spring break without drinking. And I knew at that point, all right, there's something going on. My parents, I do believe that my mom suffered with alcohol use disorder because every day at 5 o'clock, literally at 5 o'clock, the scotch and water would come out. She would make a drink for herself and a drink for my dad with a twist of lime or lemon. And she would give it to me, and I would carry it to my dad through the, through the, uh, the kitchen, into the dining room, and into the living room, and I would give it to my dad. But I would take a couple sips along the way. Um, again, when I got into college, I knew that it had really become an issue. Um, I was always that person who was hysterical at the party. I was always the person who was just doing all the fun things, the funny things, making everyone laugh. Um, but I was always the person who would wake up the next day and say, what the heck happened? What did I do last night? What did, what did last night look like? And people would tell me the next day, Kim, you were so hysterical. Oh my God, all that stuff you were doing last night, you were so funny. I had no clue what they were talking about. And the shame and the guilt and the self-loathing and the self-hatred, I cannot tell you how deep it went every time that happened. Um, I was a wine drinker, um, but I would drink five, six, seven glasses of wine. I can't just have one. It was, like a, it was like a bag of Lay's potato chips. You can't have one. That's just how my body's built. Um, I smoked, again, at a very young age. And I used to actually smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, sometimes more. If I went out on a Friday night, I'd have two packs just for Friday night. Um, and I knew that I knew I had this problem, but I just didn't share it with anyone. I hid it. And I allowed people to say, yeah, you were hysterical. And I would just kind of laugh along with it. I'll never forget one time I was at a, uh, at a business meeting for my last organization, and my former colleague is actually in the audience here. I'm not sure if she was here at that point, but 
we were in Baltimore and we all went out drinking and I got completely drunk, completely drunk. And I woke up the next morning at about 8.15 to close to 30 text messages on my phone from my husband at the time, my manager, my coworkers, my daughter, voicemail messages. Everybody was so concerned about me because I was in communication with my husband. And usually when I get back to my hotel room, I will text him and say, I'm, I'm back. I'm okay. I'm fine. But I hadn't done that this night. He was so worried about me. He thought I was on the side of the road in a ditch that he went on my company's website, found the name of my boss, found the name of my coworkers, reached out to them to say, where is Kim? How is Kim? What's going on? My boss called several times. And in the middle of the night, there was a major, there was a, a fire alarm in the hotel and the entire hotel was evacuated except for me. I slept through the whole thing and I got up the next day when I woke up, I had to be at my meeting at 8.30 and I woke up at 8.15 to all these messages, feeling sick to my stomach because I was so hungover. And I had to sit through the entire day with that feeling of, oh my God, Kim, you did it again. And now look at this, you're bringing in your coworkers, you're bringing in your, your manager. You know, your husband's reaching out to people that, you know, it's almost like my, my secret was kind of revealed. But again, I just laughed it off. I was sick as a dog the whole day. The, the lunch that day was Mexican food, and I don't think I can ever look at Mexican food ever again. It was the worst kind of meal to have the day that I was hungover. Um, but I share that with you and also say that during all those times, I was still a top performer. I was making sales and developing partnerships left and right. Colleagues were looking up to me like, wow, Kim, how do you do what you do? And wow, you're so happy and go lucky and you're great all the time. And you know, they loved me, but nobody knew how much I hated myself. Nobody knew that I was wearing a mask every single day and that at the end of the day, that mask would come off and I would absolutely crumble. I remember one time being in Schenectady, New York, knowing that I had to go and give a presentation and I was literally curled up in a ball in the corner of my hotel room thinking I can't go because my social anxiety, I'm in sales and I had social anxiety and it, I had to push through it every single day. Um, but I pushed through it that time and I got out of my hotel room and I did what I needed to do. Um, it was just a very, very difficult time for me. Many times I tried to stop drinking, but I couldn't. And it was just very, very challenging for me. But on one particular day, it was actually July 16th, 2009. So just in a couple of weeks, I'll be 10 years sober. But on July 16th, 2009, I had done work at Monadnock Community Hospital. It was a beautiful day like it is today, a little bit hotter. I had a great day, had a successful lunch and learn, did some networking with the chief nurse and HR and all sorts of things out there. It was a really great day. 
on the outside. But on the inside, it wasn't. Because that was the day that I said, Kim, you've got to make a change. Because two weeks prior to that, on July 4th, we had a party at my house, a block party. I was always the one in the neighborhood to develop the block parties. Because you know what? If I did it, then I could drink. But at this particular time, at this particular block party, I woke up the next day on July 5th, and I had on a pair of white pants and a black shirt from the night before. And I said to my husband, why do I still have my clothes on from last night? Then I said, what happened last night? And why are my white pants covered in black marks? And he looked at me dead in the eye and said, Kim, you were so drunk last night that you tripped and came inches from falling into the fire pit. Like, to my gut, to my gut, like, oh my God, I almost fell into the fire pit. I felt awful. I felt so ashamed. I felt out of control, but yet I still continued to perform. And I still continue to put on that mask of happiness. I still continue to raise my daughter to cook for my family, to provide for my family, while I just had this raging hate for myself on the inside. So on July 16th, 2009, on my way back from Monadnock Community Hospital, I stopped at the Mall of New Hampshire in Manchester, sat outside Sears for some reason, or where the Olympia Sports and Sears is, and I cried from about 4 o'clock till about 4.45. I literally just sat there and cried. And I said, I need, I need help, but I don't know how to do it. And when I tell you, and I get goosebumps when I talk about this, the stars aligned for me that day because I called my doctor's office at 4.45 on July 16th, 2009. My thought process, this is the addictions person in me, my thought process was I'm going to call. They'll get me an appointment for tomorrow. I'll go home, have my couple of glasses or more than that of wine, and then the next day I'll cancel my appointment. But at least I would have made it, made the appointment. That's not what happened. On that day, I called at 445, and the woman on the other end of the phone said, we have a brand new nurse practitioner who can see you at 5.15. And I said, oh. First of all, it's a man, and no, nothing against men, but I just felt like I have this deep, dark secret. I need to talk to a woman. And she said, Kim, trust me, he is the most amazing nurse practitioner you'll ever meet. So I took the appointment. 30 minutes later, how does that happen? I took the appointment, I went in, and I sat in, in that exam room. And a guy about this tall walked in with red hair and glasses. When he came in, I just, I lost it. And I sat in that corner and just cried and cried and cried. And when I finally was able to get my composure, I said, at that point I called myself an alcoholic. I said, I'm an alcoholic, I have depression, I have anxiety, and I just want to kill myself. He looked at me with no judgment whatsoever. 
He had no judgment. That entire exam room was, every single inch of space was held for me that day. And he literally looked me straight in the eye and he said, Kim, you are a person who is living with a dual diagnosis and I am going to help you. He literally pointed right at me, right in my eyes and said, I'm going to help you. He left that room, came back within 30 seconds with brochures, with sample medications. I chose to go the medication route in the very beginning and it helped me. But most importantly, he had absolutely no judgment whatsoever. He held the right amount of space, gave me the right amount of support, and he kept close tabs on me. I went and I saw him every single week for a little while there. I engaged in therapy. Um, my colleague may re recall this, but when I started on my medication, one of the antidepressants I was on, I couldn't eat. I lost my appetite completely. <clears throat> I was 20 pounds lighter than I am right now. My hair was falling out, but I, I couldn't eat. I, I had a hard time going in the grocery store. I had a hard time cooking for my family. It literally made me want to vomit all the time, food, real food. What I did gravitate towards was sugar. <laughs> and I guess that's because I took the sugar out of my diet with all the wine. And for about a year, I survived on Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee, Reese peanut butter cup ice cream with strawberries, peanut butter sauce, chocolate sauce, and whipped cream every day. That was my diet. I looked awful. I felt awful, but I felt better. It was a rough ride for sure. Um, and, I, and I did well for quite some time with the support of that provider until a couple years down the road, he decided he was leaving the practice. And I thought, oh, geez, now what? So when he left the practice, my commitment to myself went out the door. And I stopped taking my medication because I thought, I feel fine. I'm good. I don't need my medicine. That was a wrong thing to do. I stopped going to therapy um, and fast forward a little bit to 2013. Uh, my boyfriend at the time had moved out to California to take care of his mother who was, who was dying at the time. My daughter was in college and I had the house to myself. Yippee, I got the house all to myself. That's the worst thing for me because I isolated like you would not believe. I got up every day and I went to work in my high-performing <laughs> mask that I wore, but at the end of the day, I isolated. I remember I had shoulder surgery done and I was home from January to March all alone. I isolated. I sat in a chair and looked out the window for hours at a time. I canceled my physical therapy appointments because I didn't want to leave the house. I was afraid to go out in the dark. But there was one particular day in 2013 that I can remember distinctly. I was in my dining room, which was being converted into a bedroom at the time. Prior to my boyfriend leaving to go to California, he had actually framed out a closet in that room to make it into a bedroom, but he never had the chance to finish that closet. 
So for months at a time, I looked at those exposed two by fours in that dining room being converted to a bedroom. And I thought, how strong are those two by fours? And would those two by fours be strong enough to hold my weight if I were to do the unthinkable? I thought about it every day. I looked at those two by fours every single day and thought, if I just got a sheet, how, what would happen? How would I do it? I was like, I was planning it. But there was one particular day I remember um, sitting in that dining room and I was listening to music and I was getting ready to paint. And I just remember sitting in the middle of that floor thinking, I am a shell of a person. I almost felt like I was disassociated and just looking down on my body saying, you've got no hopes, Kim. You have no dreams. You are worthless. What the heck happened to you? And at that point, I could literally go through and find a legitimate reason why my father would be fine without me, why my sister would be fine without me, my brother, my cousins, my coworkers. Wow, they'd be shocked because Kim's this high-performing superwoman. They'd be shocked. I could literally figure out a reason why every single person would be better off without me here until I got to my daughter. I could not find a reason why she'd be better off without me. And in exact, at that exact moment, I got a random text message from a friend out in California who I hadn't heard from in months. And that text message said, is everything okay? The stars aligned again because before that text message on my own cell phone, I had started to write a text message to my neighbor because remember I lived by myself and I thought if I go through the unthinkable, how long am I going to be here in my house until someone finds me? So I had actually put together a text message to my neighbor to say, please call the dairy police. Please have them come to my house, but please, I don't want you to come inside. I didn't want him to find me in the state that I was planning to put myself in. I didn't want him to find my body lifeless. And that text message came through from a friend of mine at the same time. So obviously I never went through the unthinkable, but I consider myself an almost suicide attempt survivor because I was so close. I was so close. I knew the height of the chair. I figured out the weight. I knew the sheet. I knew everything that I was going to do. But the stars aligned, and I never went through with it. It's a difficult story for me to go back and, and listen to, but the beauty of it is that I now realize, and for the past few years, I've been extremely healthy, and I realize that my story can help others. My story can help others understand that they're not alone um, and that they matter. And I'll tell you, three years after that incident, um, I finally came clean with my manager and told her that I was having problems. She came up, she lived in New Jersey. She came up and spent the day with me in Boston 
and we cried, and I told her everything, everything that was going on. And she had no idea. But then she was now connecting the dots, like, why was, you know, why did Kim lose all that weight, all that weight? What happened to her? You know, because she knew that there was something off, but I just wouldn't admit to it. And she said, Kim, you've been doing such a great job at work. I want you to take some extra time off around Memorial Day weekend. So she gave me the Friday before and the Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend. She gave that time to me off. That was in 2016. To me, that's not my sober date, but that's the date that I finally got my soul back. My light started to come back on because I had been yearning to go on a spiritual retreat, just like a women's retreat where I could disconnect, shut off, 100% focus on me, and figure out what's going on. And I went to a place called the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. And I literally, I literally Googled spiritual retreat Memorial Day weekend 2016, and I came up with the work of Byron Katie. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Byron Katie here, but she is an internationally known speaker who does a process called The Work. And her work is free. It's online. And it teaches you really how to question your thoughts through a four-step process. Spending the weekend with Byron Katie and those 200 other individuals and watching them go through that process, watching her teach her work, the light finally came back on in my, in my soul. It was just a little bit of a glimmer of hope, but I was finally able to realize that a lot of the stuff that I'm thinking, the self-loathing, the hatred, the Kim, you're not good enough. Kim, what's wrong with you? Those were all things that were really, I was making up in my own mind. And I was finally able to take control of my thoughts. Now it wasn't overnight, but I will tell you that when I drove up to Rhinebeck, New York, it took me four and a half hours to get there. I was a complete and utter disaster. On my way back from Rhinebeck, New York, I felt free. I was, think of this. If you, anyone ever go bowling and have the bumpers up so you can't get a gutter ball? Prior to going to her, retreat for the weekend, my mind would always be jumping into the future and I'd be anxious and afraid, or it would be going into the past and I'd feel angry and upset. Or After I went to her retreat, I was only able to live in the present. And if my mind started to jump to the future and I'd get anxious or worried, or if my mind started jumping to the, to the past and I would go towards that depressive, depressive state, I was catching myself and I was finally teaching myself to live in the moment. It seems like a small thing, but for me, it's, it's everything. And if my mind starts to, I've got those bumpers up. And if my mind wants to go up and over the bumper, I might allow it for a second, but I catch it. And I say, no, Kim, you have to bring your thoughts back here. After meeting with Byron Katie, I went to another retreat, um, a woman by the name of Karen Drucker, who's a singer and a songwriter. She's now my personal friend. She lives out in California. And when I first went to her retreat, it was a Friday night, and she was singing and had all this music. And 
there were women all around me and they were all crying and I'm thinking, what the heck did I just sign up for? Everyone's crying around me. Oh my God. Right. I'm like, Oh my God. And the very next day, um, she started playing, playing some music and she played this one song called I am open and <coughs> waterworks happened for me. <laughs> um, the song is something along the lines of I'm open to um, the possibility of being who I am and being free. She has songs called I am a gift. It's okay to not be perfect. Her music is their short chance, but it's all healing music. She, a lot of cancer patients will listen to her music. A lot of folks who are suffering with chronic disease, um, mental health issues. I listen to her music every single day. And her music brought me back to life. And I equate it with IV fluids going through my body. She just, she gave me my, my spirit back. From that point, um, I decided I need to start sharing my story. So I became a presenter through the National Alliance on Mental Illness to uh, share my story through the In Our Own Voice Network. And I speak all across New Hampshire. I go to, I've been to um, Parkland Medical Center. I speak to patients on the unit to tell them there's nothing wrong with you and you're going to get through this and it's okay to not be okay. Um, I have spoken to graduating classes of nursing students to really tell them it's a huge gift if you have a patient that comes into your room and expresses that they have an addiction, that they have mental illness, that they have something that they're so incredibly ashamed about, know that that is a gift and hold the right amount of space for them because it took them an incredible amount of courage to actually walk through those doors. And you yourselves may be suffering at the same time too. Remember to take care of yourselves so that you can take care of your patients. After getting trained through the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I went a step further and I now teach a 12-week evidence-based program called Family to Family, which teaches family members who have loved ones that live with mental illness how to support, how to communicate with them, how to understand them. And... It's a phenomenal program. Um, I've been speaking around the country. I'll be speaking at a chief nursing officer conference in uh, October out in California. Um, speaking in Houston at a human resources conference to really, again, bring the fact that employees are our largest asset within, a, within an organization. And if our employees aren't doing well, the organization won't do well. And especially in the healthcare setting where you all have the chance to touch patients, you have the chance to judge them or not judge them. And I highly encourage you. I know that that nurse practitioner, he saved my life. If I had encountered a nurse, a medical assistant, a physician, a PA who just brushed me off that day, I would never have engaged in treatment. It was so incredibly important that he came into my life that day. I cannot tell you how important it is. And 
working with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a lot of folks feel that they get the brush off from their providers. I'm not saying any of you do this, but um, a lot of folks feel like they're still discriminated against. It's an honor for me to be part of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and I think we're still um, ironing out the name, but I'm on the advisory board for the Substance Use Discrimination uh, Committee that's here at Dartmouth. So I'm working with a lot of the folks here um, and really trying to make a difference at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and I love the 99 Faces exhibit out there. That's awesome. Um, but I work with uh, Seddon Savage. She's the one who's leading up that anti-discrimination advisory committee. <clears throat> Most importantly, I am sharing my story in the hopes that you as individuals can understand that it's okay to not be okay, that there is nothing wrong with you, and that it's okay to reach out to a coworker, a family, a friend, or a provider. And it's okay if the provider who you decide to work with doesn't mesh with you, it's okay to find someone else. Because you know what? I fired one of, my, one of my doctors. He's a GI doctor, and he treated me for many, many years for stomach issues. One of the things I never told him was that I was drinking all the time on the medication that I wasn't supposed to have sugar on. And I came clean one time because I felt, you know what? I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm in recovery. And I came clean to him. <clears throat> He was so ticked off at me. He was so ticked off at me. And I don't blame him because he put in a lot of time and energy to try and help me. And I wasn't honest with him for a good 12 years that I was drinking heavily on this medication that I wasn't supposed to. So he had a right to be mad at me. However, as a professional, he didn't have a right to be mad at me. He should have seen that I was a person living with an illness, and he didn't. And remember when I said back then I used to call myself an alcoholic? I no longer call myself an alcoholic. I call myself a person who lives with alcohol use disorder. My niece, I no longer say that my niece is bipolar. I say I have a niece who lives with bipolar disorder. We don't say... I am a heart attack, I am a stroke, I am a heart disease. No, I'm a person who lives with a heart attack. So if any of you, again, are struggling with your self-worth or you're struggling with trying to reach a patient and make a difference in that patient's life, please let them know and let you all know that you are a person first living with a disease, just like any other disease. It's just that this disease has so much stigma attached to it that we just label ourselves. I used to be ashamed to back then be an alcoholic. I am now very proud because in two weeks, it's going to be 3,650 days since I have had a drink when I couldn't even get through 24 hours before. And if someone has a problem with alcohol use disorder, they don't belong in my life. I create boundaries because I finally 100% love who I am I love myself, and the love that I have is just being spread around the country by sharing my story of strength and hope. Um, I recently contributed to a book called The Strength of Our Anchors. 
which uh, was a story, a compilation of 10 different individuals who shared their stories of trials and tribulations, and I wrote about a chapter about my entire life. And I'm now releasing a book in October. I'm now the visionary author, and I have 10 authors who are writing for me. And the title of the book is It's Okay to Not Be Okay. So I am, like, so committed to just helping and just saying it, it really is okay to not be okay. So I want to take some questions, but before that, I just wanted to go through some of the tools in the workplace. So one of the things, and this could go for employees and also patients, so clearly state the organizational commitment to mental wellness. I know that Dartmouth-Hitchcock is doing a phenomenal job with the 99 Faces campaign, with the anti-stigma and discrimination campaign. Train managers, supervisors to identify and support an at-risk employee or patient. Become familiar with the signs. I know uh, Chief Just uh, Justice John Broderick, he's got the five signs of the five signs of mental illness. Know those signs. Get to know them. Train your clinical staff on screening for mental health and substance abuse for both employees and patients. It's okay to conversation. It's okay to ask someone if they need help. Develop procedures to recognize and respond to crisis situations. Be there for your employees. Be there for your coworkers. Offer internal seminars on employee assistance, stress management. How do you get to the EAP? Who is the EAP? What is it? Talk about work-life balance, financial planning, and really just provide, and I, you know, I looked at this presentation 52 times, and I just realized today that I cut off substance. But anyway, provide resources and training specific to mental wellness, substance abuse, diversity, and harassment, because it's absolutely necessary to have the conversation, and it's absolutely necessary as individuals, I'm sorry, that's my phone, as individuals and also patients to be able to, sorry about that, to be able to, you know, understand what mental illness looks like. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. It looks like this. It could look like someone who's homeless. It could look like something in between. So just know those signs. And with that, I would love to take questions. Know that I'm an open book and nothing is too personal. And I'd be more than happy to address any questions. Anybody has any questions, I'd like you to speak into the mic because we're recording today. I actually don't have a question. I just want to stand and say congratulations on being sober for all those Thank you. Thank you. Anyone have any questions? Usually there's a lot of questions. Could you tell us the name of the course that you teach one more time for families? I think that'd be really helpful for employees sure. and patients. Yes. So if you're not familiar with NAMI, which is also the National Alliance on Mental Illness, they're in Concord. They're a, a, a national grassroots organization, and they have chapters all around the country. They have tons of free programs. But the one that I teach in is called Family to Family. It's an evidence-based 12-week program, and I follow a curriculum with two other teachers, um, and we teach that class. I'm also part of the In Our Own Voice program where I share my story. There's peer-to-peer -peer programs. There's life-interrupted programs where individuals will share how their lives are interrupted at, in, in, uh, because of mental illness. There's mental health first aid 
but the one that I do teach that's the 12-week is called Family to Family. Yes. And everything with NAMI is free. Unless, if you're a member with NAMI, I think it's like 25 or $35 a year, and it's well worth the investment to be able to support all the free programs and volunteers such as myself. Okay, if nobody has any questions, I guess, oh, yay. <laughs> when you first went through really discovering everything that's going on, you talked with your manager, did, did that organization then start putting things in place to recognize with employees? Because it sounds like if you're in sales, that your manager was in New Jersey. So there was a connection, but not, she didn't see you every day. But did they start putting things in place, and how did they... Make it so that as an employee, you were, you were supported, but right. they could also recognize with, the, with other employees. Great point. I work remotely, so I could show up once a week on my one-to-one -one with my boss and be all chipper and happy and all that great stuff and then hang up and just fall to pieces. Um, so funny that you say that because two years ago, and my colleague Leah over here, she was witness this. My vice president at the time had reached out to me because we had a business development summit that was happening, I think it was in July. And she said, Kim, I recognize all the work that you're doing in the mental health space because I'm very active on Facebook, on LinkedIn. My cards are over there if you want to pick one up and follow me. I'm an advocate in that space. And she had said, I would love for you to present and share your story at the business development sales summit. And I said, Oh, God. <laughs> I can talk to a room full of a 1,000 strangers, but get 35 of my coworkers, my VP, HR, marketing, and my colleagues in a room. I actually had to ask my therapist, what do I do? I did. I said, I can talk about the mental illness, but what about the alcohol? Even I was having a problem with that. So she said, well, what would you do if it was a group of strangers? I said, I'd share it all. And that's when I said, okay, I got to do it. So I literally had 45 minutes, and I stood up in front of everyone that I worked with, and I got up, I shared a little bit about the statistics, and then I got into my story. For that 45 minutes, I can tell you that no one got up for coffee. No one went to the bathroom. You could hear a pin drop. Coworkers were crying. Coworkers were finally connecting the dots as to why when they saw Kim once or twice a year that she was wasting away, why all of a sudden she was a life of the party and just stopped drinking. Um, I blamed it on the fact that I couldn't have sugar, which I really wasn't supposed to have sugar, so that really was my reason why I stopped drinking, but that's not the full reason. But I shared the entire story. When I finished, I was met with so much love and so much support, and eight people, eight, came up to me after that presentation and said, I suffer too. Eight people. That, to me, made a huge difference. Um, whether they implemented additional resources with, through HR, 
I didn't see that, but my vice president took a chance on me and brought me in and brought me to the front of that group to deliver that message. And she supports me and she likes my stuff on LinkedIn and she shares my things on LinkedIn and she knows that it's, it's a very important conversation to have. I will tell you that the employer that I work for right now is amazing and they 100% are completely open to that conversation. So yes, we started to make a difference, but then she had a job change. But I really do think that within those 45 minutes, I reached a lot of people. And I changed the lives of a lot of people that day. Yeah. Any other questions? Hey, thank you. Thank you, Kim, for your presentation. It was really very helpful and, and brave. I appreciated it. Thank you. Um, and I just wanted to validate, I, I'm with the Employee Assistance Program here, Yay. and so I just want to validate okay. that it is a robust program and it is confidential. We don't document in the medical record. Um, and uh, we actually are not part of HR. We don't, there's no uh, sharing uh, in terms of employee files. Okay. Uh, so I would encourage people that may be feeling the need to check us out. It's for employees and their immediate staff, uh, family members. Where would they be able to check that information out? Where would they find the services? So there's a web, there's a website and the internet. They could just uh, search EAP. Um, the number is six five zero five eight one nine. I wish we had. You're making me wish we had a catchier number. Uh, oh. But, uh, but uh, yeah. So, well, that's great, and I think you know. Were you shocked by the usage rate that I put up on that screen? Three to five percent usage no, rate. Our, ours is twelve. Excellent. So okay. Could still be better. You're doing, but that's you're doing a good job. That was a national. That was a national average that I had come up with um, in my research, but I am so thankful that you're here, and the fact that someone is here today from the Employee Assistance Program to me demonstrates the fact that there's a commitment to employee wellness here at Dartmouth Hitchcock and that it's okay to talk about it, and that it's okay to ask for help. So please don't be like those 27% of coworkers who feel like it's not okay to tell someone that you're struggling, because it's, in some cases, it could be life or death. And something that could seem like a major mountain and a major hurdle, just by talking about it, just by getting help, you can begin to unravel that, and, and that major mountain can turn into maybe a little grain of salt by the time that you're done. But I know and I understand how big and how difficult and how impossible sometimes life feels, but know that there's help out there, and I'm, I'm super impressed that you're here today. Thank you so much for coming. Yes. Any other questions? I know we're right at time. All right, I'd like to thank everyone for coming today. It was a fabulous presentation. Great. Thank you, thank Kim. You.